Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. Now I must get many heavy books. Normally, when I'm preaching to you, I like to at most have just this book. But in order to do what I'm going to do, I need these. And so we will talk about those in a moment. But in our scripture today, we are focusing on what we do believe, because I'm about to present to you something that we don't believe. And when we started asking members of the church, what is some topic about Christianity that you're curious about or something that you're confused over, a lot of people ticked off purgatory. And with good reason, because unless you grew up Catholic, then you probably don't understand the doctrine of purgatory. Purgatory is part of the Roman Catholic Church. It is not a Protestant theology. It is not part of the United Methodist Church. It is distinctly Catholic. And we encounter purgatory because since the history of Christianity, and certainly even now, Roman Catholics are the largest denomination of Christendom. And so their theology is very present. It's definitely something that has filtered into our media. It's been portrayed, purgatory has been portrayed in books, in songs, in music, and in TV. And there are plenty of people that have heard that word and might have some notion about what purgatory is. And so it's only natural that you're curious about it. And I would like to share with you not only what the doctrine of purgatory is, but what it is that we believe in. And so purgatory is this place to which people may go upon their death. And the Catholic Church has this because they believe in a dual judgment. They believe that at any individual person's death, there's an immediate judgment. And if in the Catholic Church you had died having just previously received extreme unction, also referred to as the last rites, and been forgiven of all your sins, then you might have the opportunity to go to heaven. Well, having done chaplaincy for six months in a hospital, I can tell you that very few Catholics fulfill that. That it's very rare that right up before a death that a priest is there to offer extreme unction. There's just too many people and not enough priests, and they can't be everywhere at all times. And so if you have not been forgiven through the last rites, then you would go to purgatory. And purgatory, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, is based upon a concept of sin that I'm about to share with you. It says, To understand this doctrine and the practice of the church, it is necessary to understand that sin has a double consequence. Grave sin deprives us of communion with God and therefore makes us incapable of eternal life, the privation of which is called the eternal punishment of sin. On this we agree, that sin creates a barrier, a wall between us and our God, and that we need to have that removed. We just disagree on how it's removed. The church goes on to say, On the other hand, every sin, even venial, sins of thought, entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures, which must be purified either here on earth 
or after death in the state of purgatory. This purification frees one from what is called the temporal punishment of sin. And these two punishments must not be conceived of as a kind of vengeance inflicted by God from without, but as following from the very nature of sin. A conversion which proceeds from a fervent charity can attain the complete purification of the sinner in such a way that no punishment would remain. And so with that understanding of sin, that it must be purged from us, they have this doctrine of purgatory. All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. So the law of the Catholic Church lets you know that upon death, unless you are in a state of purification, you will go to a place called purgatory. And there you will be cleansed by fire, according to their belief. And there, when Jesus returns, you will be resurrected. And at that time, Jesus will determine whether you have been properly purified in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. If not, then you will enter into eternal damnation, hell in the Catholic Church. We don't believe this. You'll note that even their doctrine states that it comes from the councils of Florence and Trent. So human gatherings of clergy. And I am giving you the official warning. If clergy say something to you and can't back it up with scripture, don't listen to us. I would hate to have an occasion where I would say, such and such is true, and my citation for this is Pastor Sarah's sermon from a pretty Sunday in December. You wouldn't want to hear that. Again and again in our denomination and in many other churches, you have to uphold what you say with the scripture. Anything I say, I should be able to reach back into scripture and show you the basis for it. Not the fact that a bunch of friends of mine were gathered around at a dinner table one night and decided that this is what we believe. Instead, we want to be sufficiently grounded in Scripture, right? Because this is the inspired Word of God. This is the tradition not only of Christianity, but this is the tradition of all those who are believers in God, tracing themselves all the way back to Abraham. And so there is great tradition here. There is great weight and wealth of wisdom, and we want to use this. So if you're not going to go to purgatory, why would that be? Well, in Protestantism especially, and in Methodism specifically, we believe that you don't need to suffer for your sin. If God wanted you to suffer for your sin, then God could just let us suffer, yes? Instead of having to intervene by coming to earth in human form in Jesus Christ, God could have just let us go about our merry way. We will suffer the consequences of our sin if we live long enough, and we certainly, on a daily basis, suffer the consequences of the sin of others. Do we not? And so it is that we don't have that concept that Christ came to us not to inflict punishment, but to set us free. And we look back on all four gospel accounts and see repeatedly that Christ isn't instigating suffering. He is stopping suffering. There's a reason why they called him the balm of Gilead. 
because he came to bring a release to those who were suffering. That's why he cured those who were sick. That's why he ended their blindness or their disability, whatever it was that was keeping them physically in pain and suffering. He released them from that. He freed those who were completely burdened with unclean spirits. He set them free so that mentally and emotionally they could be full and at peace and in comfort because otherwise they were suffering. And one of the ways in which we understand that God does not want us to suffer is that Jesus models this specifically in the gospel account of John. And so with words that are far superior to my own, I'm going to read you a story of which you are probably very familiar, but will support what I'm saying to you. There in the gospel account of John in chapter 8, we hear these words. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down and began, he began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? So to set the scene for you, Jesus has gone into a house of God and there... People have already begun to be drawn to him. He's there preaching and teaching to them. They thirst for the word that he has. And the Pharisees and the scribes have decided to trap Jesus. This isn't the story of the suspected adulteress, as you may have heard. It's very clear. She's not suspected. She was caught red-handed. They found her in the act. I'm hoping and praying that they at least clothed her before they brought her there. But they bring her there and stand her before Jesus and all those who were gathered there to listen to him. And in that moment of complete and utter humiliation and shame, they ask whether they should follow the law and stone her. The gospel says they said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. This story tells us that Jesus could have undergirded his teachings with the understanding that we need to suffer for our sins. He could have said, you shouldn't kill her, but cause her suffering. Don't aim for her head. Aim for the shoulders and down. Aim at her legs. Make her feel physical pain and suffering for the atrocity that she has committed. He could have said that. They were hoping that he would say that they could not stone her so that they could say he has undermined the law and therefore he is a heretic. And if he had said we should stone her, then plenty of people would have thought that to be atrocious. They weren't even stoning in those days. They had moved beyond that. And so the idea is to catch him. You can't catch God. They don't understand that. So as he's there, he kind of bends over and starts writing something in the ground. 
And the scripture is completely silent as to what he was writing. And I'll tell you, if I could have one wish, I would love to be there hovering above and observing all of this and seeing what it was he was writing. And part of me, and this is completely me, not scriptural and not doctrinal, part of me wonders if I could be there and see, would it be him writing in Hebrew? Would it be him writing in his vernacular of Aramaic? Would it be in Mandarin or Cantonese or Sanskrit or maybe even English because he's capable? Is he writing the word grace? It's the one thing missing from the discussion, isn't it? Grace. And so he writes whatever he writes, and they're not even paying attention to him because they're too busy trying to get the reaction that they want. And so finally he says, whoever is without sin, go right ahead. And they know. They know that they're not without sin. Even the elders and the scribes and the Pharisees, they know that they are not perfect. None of us are. And so in their intellectual humiliation, they leave one by one until it's just her and Jesus. And he looks up at her and he says, is there no one to condemn you? And he who is the embodiment of God, he had everything he needed to condemn her. And what did he say? Neither do I. You are free. Go forward. Do not sin again. Now, if Jesus really thought that it was necessary for her to feel pain and suffering, then Jesus could have certainly given it to her. But no, instead he sets her free. And he lets her go to try to live again a better life, an unadulterated life. We believe this in the Methodist Church. We do not believe that you need to suffer, that there's plenty of suffering to go around, and when you die, instead, we believe where the Scriptures tell us that what awaits you is God and peace. We believe that when all of us die, as all of us will, that instead of burning or purification or whatever that is, that instead we will be awaiting in whatever form God has dictated that to be for Jesus' return. And the judgment that Jesus himself reiterates in the gospel account of Matthew. That Jesus will come, all will be resurrected, and then he shall judge. And he will judge the living and the dead, he says. And that's what we're waiting for. We're not waiting to hope that at the end of all this life and any suffering we endure, that we have a few eons of pain and suffering, and then maybe perhaps then we can stand righteous. Paul didn't believe that. Paul, in our gospel reading, in our reading today, says, we are justified by faith, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. We stand before God righteous because of that. The cross is what makes us righteous. Not that we are better than anybody else. Not that we are more deserving or we work harder. None of that matters. What matters is that God loves us and God has saved us. And by the grace of the cross, everyone who desires to receive that grace can. We can be saved. It is ours if we want it. There's no burning or purging awaiting you if God has given you grace. We hear about justification by faith. And justification by faith is not that on your deathbed, I or some other clergy in my realm come before you and go, 
you were a good person. I have decided. This is not it. Because the truth is that I am no better than you. I am just called to a different role in the life of the church. And I've told you before that you will affect more lives in the name of Jesus Christ than I will. Because you will encounter people out there in much more multitude than I do. I who seem to dwell here every day of the week. You are out there and you will come into contact with people and they will encounter grace and God's love and the story of Jesus Christ in you. People who come here tend to have already had that. And so you will be much more impactful in that than I will. We are called to this together. I am not more elite than you. And let me be straight. I am not telling you that the Catholic Church is evil. I'm not telling you that their doctrines make them evil people. There are plenty of good Catholics that I know. In fact, some of them I know and love, and nothing breaks my heart more than for them to think that no matter how hard they strive to be good disciples of Jesus Christ, what awaits them upon their death is purgatory. I would never want to preach a funeral that had that. I could not look at a family who was mourning and loss and suffering, usually right here, and look at them and say, and now if we pray hard enough, perhaps they can be purged in purgatory. I can't say that. I don't believe it. I don't believe that God has done all that God has done just so that we can suffer more. I don't believe that. I believe that over and over again, God has been trying to help us turn from that which causes our suffering, relinquish that which causes the suffering of others, and show us that there is a way to the kingdom that is filled with joy and grace and love. And that is who we are called to be. Now, there are people with many, many different doctrines in the world, many different theologies, and that's their business. I don't go around telling other people what they should do in their church. But even here in Crozet, there are other denominations and churches here that don't think that I have the right to stand before you. They're wrong. And that's their loss. Because truthfully, it's not about the vessel. All the vessels are imperfect. All the vessels are flawed and mournful and sinful. And all of us are broken. It is only grace that fixes us. And so it doesn't matter to me your age or your gender or your legal status. It doesn't matter to me your sexual orientation or what you're wearing. What's important to me is the Christ in your heart. And if there is Christ in your heart, then you can stand here and preach with me any day of the week. Because that is what we believe. That is who we are. But I understand the desire for suffering. I think it's a sinful human inclination. I mean, when I was growing up, there was nothing I enjoyed more than watching my sister get punished. <laughs> she deserved it. Let's just be straight. She deserved it. But there is something especially wonderful when you get to stand there when your parents dish it out. And, of course, my parents were always too easy on her. If they had just gone hard early, we would have avoided years of pain. <laughs> but you used to enjoy it, right? Look, she's going to suffer. How long? How long? How long are you going to give her this time? You used to wait for it. And then I grew older and, you know, turned 30. And eventually I had a child and I don't enjoy punishing my child. 
I don't enjoy that. This is where the parental metaphor of us and God the Father is so strong because I don't punish my child because I think he needs to suffer. That's not why I do it. Instead, I punish my child to say, you have broken the laws of the household, which usually are the law of God, and you can't do this, and I need you to stop and understand that this causes pain and suffering, not only in you, but in us and others, and this punishment is the end this is the point, and it will stop here, and then you will be forgiven, love, and free to go forth and never do this again. And the whole time, I'm thinking to myself, I would rather not punish my child by making him stay in the house for an entire week so that he can follow me around and ask me every question ever. That is a whole other level of suffering that I don't sign on for. But instead, it is the hope that our punishment will help us turn. What good is it to punish you after you are dead before the resurrection? What is the purpose? Because when you're resurrected into new spiritual bodies that according to Paul are impervious to sickness, death, and sin, then why bother purifying this? Because this will go away. This is not permanent, but what God will grant us at the, recon- at the resurre- resurrection when we are reconciled is perfect and permanent eternal, perfect. So why do we have this doctrine? Why? I don't know why they have that doctrine, but I'm grateful that we don't because I don't want to tell people that after all your life, after all that you've done wrong and all that you've tried to do right, it still doesn't matter because there's a temporary hell waiting for you. I don't believe that. And if someone believes that, that is their right. But I want you to know that the Methodist Church has a stance on purgatory. We literally have a stance on it. Here's our book. And I just want you to know that this is how to run a committee. Right there. That's how to do it. This little itty bit up here is our history and our doctrine. The Methodist Church is descended from the Anglican Church of England. It was one step away from the Catholic Church. And when the Methodist Church came into existence, it inherited from its mother church 25 articles of faith. And these are what bind us together. These are not up for discussion. These can never be amended or deleted or added to. This is who we are. And Article 14 is of purgatory. It says, the Romish doctrine concerning purgatory is a fond thing, vainly invented and grounded upon no warrant of Scripture, but repugnant to the Word of God. Now, if you know anything about the Methodist Church, you know that we don't use words like that very often. We don't. But early Protestants could see the pain and suffering that the doctrine of purgatory had. And they decided to set people free from that in a very frank and upfront way by saying that we don't agree with purgatory. We don't because the metaphor that you hear over and over again, especially in our communion liturgy, is that we were shackled to sin and death. We were handcuffed to this future of pain and suffering and ultimately death because of human sin. And Christ came and with his keys to hell and death, as the book of Revelation says, He unlocked our shackles, and he set us free, just like he did to the adulteress when he said to her, go your own way and sin no more. 
He set her free. He sets us free. But more than this, this is grace. Not only does he set us free, but then he hands us the key. And he says, take this and set them free too. We are not the elect who sit here in our private freedom and look down on everybody else who is still shackled. We are sent forth to set people free. We are the second coming of the Exodus. It started with Moses. When God looked at Moses and said, you will go to Pharaoh and you will say to him, set my people free. God is looking at every single Christian gathered in worship somewhere this day and saying to them, set my people free. Set them free. Set them free from bad theology. Set them free from doctrines that exclude and keep people out. Set them free from anything that a church might say or do that would make people feel worse about who they are. Set them free. Tell them that they can have grace. Tell them that they are loved. And then you show them. That's what it is about to be a Christian. And the United Methodist Church believes that we cannot do that alone, that we are called to do that together, that we are called to not only be impacted by that cross, but to impact other people with that same cross. And so our blessed gift from God is that you don't have to do anything. God has done it all. You just have to want to receive the benefits of it. And if you do, then it is yours. For you were created to be forgiven, loved, and free. And unfortunately, there are many people in our lives, some in our homes, but most assuredly here in Crozet, who don't think that they can ever be forgiven. They deny that they are loved because they have not encountered that kind of profound, life-changing love of Jesus Christ. And they think they can never be free. And so for every one of us that has been liberated through Jesus Christ, will we not take those keys and turn around and set the next person free? May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.